1: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Freedom. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, especially at this time of year around Independence Day. But what does it actually mean to be free? Award-winning journalist and documentarian Sebastian Younger set off on a series of surreptitious long walks along northeastern rail lines, maybe as a kind of ritual healing for a life lived in and around war. But what he found himself turning over as the miles fell under his feet was how you could live freely in a modern society where the bonds of commerce and community have grown ever more complex and multifarious. The result of all this moving meditation is his new book, Freedom, a hike through one man's conclusions about manhood, violence, inequality, and the long arc of civilization. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Sebastian Younger walked 400 miles from Washington, D.C., up to and through Pennsylvania, using railroad lines to follow the footsteps of America's colonizers. Younger describes his trek in his new book, Freedom a kaleidoscopic, slim volume of boot-compressed thought. The things that had to happen out there were so clear and simple, he writes, eat, walk, hide, sleep, that just getting through the day felt like scripture, a true and honest accounting of everything that underlies the frantic performance of life. Younger, also the author of Tribe, War, and the Perfect Storm, joins us to po- talk about his journey, Freedom, and the tension between doing whatever you want and the bonds of community. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so I know there's a big hint on the cover, but what's this book about?
2: Well, I wanted to understand how freedom works and how humans have maintained their freedom over the past, say, 10,000 years. And really the word freedom, uh, what we can take that to mean is, is how a, a group, how a community, a society maintains this autonomy in the face of a, of a more powerful foe. Uh, for most of human history, uh, maintaining your freedom meant being able to defend yourself so that more powerful enemies could not attack you, enslave you, and kill you, which of course is something that's happened over and over again in the course of human history. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I go on to, to point out, once you have a society that's capable of defending itself, that it, you know it has a robust military hierarchy that obeys commands, uh, that it's militaristic and well-armed enough to defend itself, you have all the um, tools that a despot would need in order to oppress his own or her own society. So the, the, the dual sort of challenge of freedom is to defend yourself against enemies and to maintain an equitable and egalitarian society where powerful people do not have extra rights, they do not have extra privileges that are unfair for others, that they're beholden to the same laws and norms that everybody else is.
1: Yeah. And how did you see the relationship between this sort of book of ideas about freedom and the sort of plot line of walking along these these rail lines?
2: Well, many years ago— uh, you know, I set out on this trek, not in order to write a book, just because I wanted the experience. I, w- I wanted to encounter America in the most sort of raw, unfiltered way that I could. And I went with two or three guys who were all we'd all been in a lot of combat, uh, either as journalists or or soldiers. And um, we set out on the railroad railroad lines from, as you said, from washington, d c to Philadelphia, and then we turned west and headed for Pittsburgh because there are, these, there are these sort of swaths of no man's land um, that crisscross America. And you could really sort of do what you want out there. Um, everyone else out there is also quite marginal and people are either very polite or very wary, wary of each other. We were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and cooking over fires and getting our water out of creeks. And railroad line, uh, interestingly, unlike say the Appalachian Trail, cuts right through the middle of everything that America is. It goes right through the ghettos and the wealthy suburbs and the farms and the fields and the factories. And you see everything from the inside out. And um, we called it high-speed vagrancy. And and uh, we were carrying everything we needed on our back, 60, 70 pounds of gear and food. When we ran out of food, we'd walk into a town and buy food and keep walking. And we were, we're, we were, you know, every night, we were the only people who knew where we were. And that was a very, very elemental form of freedom that we enjoyed enormously. You know, we couldn't have maintained that throughout our lifetimes, I don't think. But, but uh, 50 miles, 100 miles at a time, it was really um, a hard-won, uh, a hard-won um, privilege, a hard, hard-won luxury in some mm. ways, that autonomous and that free.
1: So you know, you made a documentary about you know at least a, a component of of this walk called "The Last Patrol." And in that documentary, you know you really lay out the stakes, you know, get to know America again, decompress from from the war, uh, or small small wars uh, as uh, of recent times. And you really have all the combat veterans there, um, and you you talk about war uh, in the documentary. In this book, all the other characters are sort, of, are sort of melded into one kind of we that's doing this walk. Why did you pull all of that out? Why did you compress it down in that way?
2: Well, I didn't want us to be, the, 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 um, to be mistaken for the topic. I didn't want us individually, either me, myself, or the other, guy, the other people involved. Uh, to be mistaken for the, the point of all this, as is often the case in sort of conventional travelogues. Um, I wanted America to be the central, the central character. Um, and I worried that if I had started saying who did what, you know, Dave lit the fire and then Brendan got the firewood and, you know, then, then I have to talk about Brendan's background and Dave's background and, and all of a sudden we're individual people. And, and, and the, the least interesting thing for a journalist Uh, at least for me, is myself and the other people around me that are engaged in doing something. Like, we're the vehicle for a topic. We're not the topic itself. And and so I thought, wow, really interesting to just talk about a group uh, without identifying people. So at one point, someone started shooting at us, right, in Pennsylvania. There was a lot of gunfire in Pennsylvania. And uh, someone started shooting at us, and the bullets sort of went over the top, you know, above our heads, you know, we we're behind a wall and all of a sudden it felt like we were in combat again for a few seconds. And, uh, and, and one of us, uh, this is what I say in the book is one of us grabbed all the only weapon we had, it was, was a machete. I said one of us grabbed a machete and ran a wide circle through the woods, trying to get behind the shooter to incapacitate him. And before that could happen, the guy left. Um, I don't want to say who that was like, it doesn't matter. Um, the the point is that we were a coherent, cohesive group, and um, and that we were um, completely loyal to each other's safety and, and our and our interests. And and in in that sense, you know, it's like in combat, the individuals really um, fade into the sort of collective, the collective endeavor. And it's something, it's a feeling that's it feels extremely good to be part of something like that.
1: Yeah. I, I, one of the interesting consequences of that decision, though, is you kind of take the why out of the book, like the book opens and you're, you're on the trek. Why are you doing it? Well, we're doing it because we're doing it. Um, how, did you, how did you think about that, both like, at the time and also in the writing of the book, about like, why you were doing this?
2: I mean, there was no why. We did it to have the trip. I mean, later, as when I embarked on writing about the topic of freedom, I thought, oh, well, this trip was an example of a kind of personal autonomy that we all enjoyed for about 400 miles. But that wasn't why we that wasn't why we did it. Um, And, uh, you know, the point of the book really was I mean, the trip is an example of autonomy. The point of the book is a a, a, um, inquiry into the nature of freedom, anthropological, historical, biological. Um, But, uh, you know, sometimes people just do things in order to have the experience and, you know, it um we didn't even really take many photos out there you know i mean sometimes i think people take do things in order to take photos of themselves doing things and that to me is like a very circular western modern western uh conceit that i think actually takes sometimes takes the value out of what you're actually doing Mm
1: -hmm. um you know at this particular moment in history um you know and we're also now some some years removed from the trip itself why did you think the world needed this book like now
2: I think the topic of freedom is uh, enduringly important. I don't think right now it's more important or less important than say during World War II or during the American Civil War or you know 5,000 years ago when the Yamnaya invaded Europe and, and invaded the Iberian Peninsula and killed every single male in the Iberian Peninsula and took over the female population. Like, I mean, freedom is um, always important. It, it's, the, it's the root of Of human dignity, and if you're not free, your your dignity is diminished and and to me that's a um I'm not religious, but it, 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 you know it feels like a, 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 a kind of sacrilege mm-hmm. uh, so I, I I wasn't picking right now as as a particularly good moment for freedom it, it, It's something that has to be understood in profound ways so that we can. Uh, lead our lives in in a way that promotes human dignity.
1: Yeah, and and how did you end up defining freedom? I mean, through time, many thinkers have had different definitions of of freedom.
2: Well, there's many definitions of it. I mean, there's there, there's spiritual freedom, there's economic freedom, there's physical freedom. Um, I, I don't. I mean, the, the the a one size fits all definition of freedom you can find in the dictionary, and it's so abstract and so. Um, sort of, um, I don't know, maybe intellectual is the word. I don't know. It's not, it's not a very, I can't even remember it, but it's not a very interesting proposition. (laughs) It's sort of obvious on the face of it. Uh,
1: Is that why you felt you needed to like go into all these different kinds of experience of nomads and uh, military groups and and slide a long time because you wanted to show all the different facets of this concept?
2: Right. I mean, there's three main ways that societies have maintained their autonomy in the face of a more powerful foe. Uh, and the book is divided into, the, into three sections that correspond to these three main ways. It's divided into run, fight and think, you know, basically the first the, the easiest way to maintain your autonomy is to is to run away from the from the threat uh, of enslavement and and and. Um, uh, if you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight them, and if you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. And and so, for example, we can talk about all three if you like. But you know, for example, in the run section, in the late 1500s, the Spaniards arrived in the American Southwest, and there were two different kinds of society, native societies. There were the Pueblo societies, which were materially very wealthy, right? They were agriculturalists. They had irrigation. They lived in fortified towns on top of mesas exquisite uh, basket work and, and pottery work and jewelry and um, uh, you know, a beautiful, beautiful society. And then there were the, the Apache and the Navajo as well who were materially poor, but very, very mobile, right? So, so what happened when the Spaniards showed up and then of course the Americans followed after that, what happened? The Pueblo societies were rolled up immediately, right? They didn't stand a chance against the Spaniards or the Americans. Uh, the 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 poor mobile Apache lasted another three hundred years or so, almost until 1900, the year that my grandmother was born. I mean, almost to, within my grandmother's lifetime, because they were so mobile. Mm-hmm. They were the Apache warriors were expected to be able to move seventy miles a day, seven zero.
3: Jesus, seventy wow.
2: miles a day on foot, they could outmaneuver U.S. cavalry. The whole community was expected to be able to walk all day long, and that's how they maintained their freedom. Uh, in the face of an overwhelming
1: foe. We're talking with Sebastian Younger, author of Freedom, his new book. His other books include Tribe, War, and The Perfect Storm. What's your definition of freedom? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQD Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Sebastian Younger about his new book, Freedom. And right before the break, Sebastian, you were talking about nomads and how they were able to outrun um, more powerful uh, entities. And Another strategy that some societies employed in order to stay free was to fight, which is the second uh sort of section of your your book here and I do really feel like the experience that you had in war is kind of really pulsing through this book in in many different ways um How do you think uh it influenced even just sort of the way you ended up kind of structuring and, and seeing the book
2: Well, yeah, I mean armed conflict has been a part of human history um since the Stone Age. Um, and w- interestingly, w- about, with humans, we're the only mammalian species that I know of where a smaller individual can defeat a larger individual or a smaller group can defeat a larger group. Um, so I looked at mixed martial arts and boxing, and there's the, 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 those sports are filled with examples of smaller, smaller fighters who can defeat a larger one. I mean, in most of the animal kingdom, the sort of largest sort of alpha male is physically dominant in the group. That's not true for humans. Um, but it, And it scales up quite nicely. The Montenegrins in the early 1600s were a wild mountain tribe, and they were invaded by the Ottoman Empire, which was the dominant military force in the world at the time. And they were outnumbered 12 to 1, right? And they just handed them their hat, right? I mean, the, 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 the Ottomans were completely defeated over and over again by the Montenegrins. And then fast forward, of course, to America and Afghanistan, um, the Taliban, who I loathe as, a, um, as, as just gross violators of human rights. But it, it should be said that if small groups like the Taliban uh, couldn't defeat the sort of the, the forces of the empire, right, the, the Brits and the Russians and the Americans, There would be no possible freedom and autonomy for smaller groups, and and the the United States wouldn't exist. I mean, we would have been defeated by the Brits. Uh, The Irish insurrectionists would have been defeated by the Brits. I mean, over and over again, in history, smaller groups can maintain their freedom because, as as humans, we're able to defeat a a more powerful foe. It's an extraordinary ability to have.
1: Yeah, I thought this was one of the most interesting ideas in the book. That essentially, even just the idea of prospective insurgencies and the cost that they could inflict on a, a larger enemy was in fact like a a sort of valuable check on the worst impulses of the powerful.
2: Yeah. I I mean, look at the Taliban, like they have no air force, they have no artillery, they have no tanks. A lot of them didn't have boots and they fought the U.S. to a standstill, the most powerful military force ever in human history. And, you know, it's not that we couldn't win any battle we wanted, but over the course of 20 years, um, we just couldn't maintain the level of involvement. That the Taliban could maintain because they're fighting in their homes and they're using very, uh, relatively uh, small amounts of resources. Um, and that's you know th- there was an interesting parallel with with actual physical fighting, right? So a larger a larger fighter, uh, a guy it's two hundred and fifty pound guy, right? immensely strong. I mean, there's a huge advantage to all that size and strength. And if you're having a fight in an elevator, the big guy's going to win, right? He puts the other guy in a headlock, and that's the end of that. Uh, but as soon as there's room to maneuver, um, it changes because all those muscles, that all that size uses up oxygen a lot faster. So larger people, given the same amount of movement, the same combination of punches, the same slips, the, 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 the same steps, the same running, they they run out of oxygen faster. And, you know, likewise for the Taliban, had, had we been fighting the Taliban in, say, Rhode Island, we would have defeated them. It's basically that would basically be the equivalent of an elevator fight. Uh, but we weren't we were fighting them in Afghanistan and they could maneuver endlessly. And we just ran out of gas. I mean, you just the nation could not sustain that level of economic expenditure for decades and decades. And so eventually they, the Taliban uh, won because they just never lost.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting, though, because insurgencies also depend on the societies in which they're sort of embedded in the way that, like, sort of an outside uh, army requires these sort of long supply chains and logistics and, of course, the great expense uh, involved in those things. So how did you think about that relationship between insurgency and, and society?
2: Right. I mean, you I mean, that comes to the idea. Idea of what freedom is. So freedom would be a society that's fighting for its autonomy. So by definition, it's sort of fighting within its own territory. It's not invading someone else, right? And, and as soon as someone says that they're invading someone else in order to maintain their own freedom, you know it's not nonsense, right? I mean, there's excellent strategic reasons for invading another country, but your own freedom really isn't. Um, almost by definite, almost by definition, it cannot be one of those reasons. Huh.
1: You know, um, I wanted talk about the way that you view sort of um, American freedom. Um, You know, one of the ways that people sometimes think about and talk about this is that you know, Americans could always go into the wilderness, semi-wilderness, you know, uh, American rugged individualism. Um, Having actually sort of done that, (laughs) um, do you see that as sort of a a, a real version of of freedom?
2: Well, I looked at Um, An area that we had passed through on foot. We walked the length of Pennsylvania, uh, mostly along the Juniata River. Now, the Juniata is the only, um, Juniata means standing stone in the original native languages of that area. And there was an enormous standing stone that had been carved with figures that stood in the present town of Huntingdon. And when the uh, white society took over this enormous uh, megalith, um, disappeared, and no one knows where it is or how, and how the natives moved it. Anyway, we walked up the Juniata River, the only east-west trending river in Pennsylvania, and so it was a mobility corridor for thousands of years. Um, the railroads were laid on top of the, the, the settlers' roads, which were laid on top of the Indian trails, which, were, which, followed the, which followed the rivers through the mountains, and so these early settlers, you know, they were um, very disempowered people. I mean, they were economically... Uh, they were very, very poor, they had no political or, or economic power, and they were fleeing society in a kind of desperation that maybe um, the wilderness would hold their, you know, w- would welcome them. And so they were leaving the oppress. They were, uh, they were leaving an oppressive church, an oppressive government, an oppressive economic system, and going into the freedom of the wilderness. But the problem is, the wilderness was very dang- dangerous, Right there were native peoples there that did not want them there, right? And so it was a very, very bloody time. And basically, if you don't have physical safety, you have no freedom. Uh, I mean, the first definition of freedom is that you are physically safe. And that means that you must ally yourself with other people. I mean, no individual survives on their own in the wilderness. You, you need to be in a part of a group for your own safety. And so, as I say in, in the book, you're, you're just trading in terms of freedom, you're trading allegiance to one thing for allegiance to another. You you left the uh, you know you freed yourself from the oppression of the of the colonial government or the or the American government or whatever, but you're in a group of co- uh, of settlers in the wilderness where you're totally inter reliant on each other to 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 uh, fight off Indian attacks, right? And and if you were not willing, particularly as an adult male in that society, if you were not willing to carry a weapon at all times and be ready to fight to the death for your community, you were not wanted, you were cast out. So, which is obviously is not a form of freedom either. There is no, you cannot be completely safe and completely free at the same time. It's just not possible. Yeah.
1: We're talking with Sebastian Younger author. Uh, He's got a new book out called Freedom. He's also written Tribe, War, and the Perfect Storm. Perhaps you heard of that one. Uh, What's your definition of freedom? What's a freedom you've willingly given up? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Especially, you know, as I read the book and read interviews with you about the book and watched The Last Patrol again and and all these kinds of things, the more I thought about it, the more I sort of saw three different versions of you kind of emerging. There was sort of the person who went on this long trail hike, you know, this this long high-speed vagrancy kind of trip. The person then who wrote the book... And then the person who's kind of talking about it now, each of which is sort of some years spread out from, from each uh, of the last. And I, I wonder how much do you think the, how much do you identify with the version of yourself that sought this kind of freedom out on the railroad lines?
2: I mean, I didn't articulate it like that at the time. I didn't say, Oh, I'm looking for freedom and I'm going to find it on the railroad lines. Um, I was on the Amtrak down to DC from New York staring out the window and I realized you could walk along the whole thing. And it was all this sort of no man's land. And, um, you know, by the way, it's completely illegal to do that. And so, you know, one of the things we had to deal with was sort of avoiding the police. Um, at one point they were looking for us in a helicopter. And, um, so, but I, you know, I just saw this, I saw this opportunity to slightly transgress on society's norms and, To be not in the wilderness, which is something I love, um, uh, but no, to be sort of marginal within my own society. And I thought that I might learn something about myself and about society by doing that, but I didn't really articulate it as freedom. Later, I realized, thinking about the topic of freedom as I prepared to write this book, oh my God, you know, I literally asked myself the question, when have you been the most free, right? So again, it depends on your definition. When you're young, you have the sort of maximum number of personal choices that you can make and very little economic freedom because no one has much money when they're young, right? You know, So it all depends on your definition. But for me, the definition that interested me was like, when were you able to do to make your own choices all day long uh, about the circumstances of your, uh, of your survival? Um, and... And where no one knows where you are, like, when, when, when was that point in your life? And it was this long trek. So that's how I brought that into my book.
1: I mean, you didn't have kids back then. You have kids now. Um, would you want to go on a trip like this again?
2: Oh, I, I mean, uh, there's lots of things I would, I would want to do, but I wouldn't be willing to trade my life as it is now for those things. I mean, who wouldn't want to be 20 again, right? I mean, who wouldn't? course I'd want to go back out there. It was, I wish I could go back to the Korongal Valley in Afghanistan at that combat, combat outpost that I was at off and on for a year. But would I do that? No, I wouldn't do, I want to, but I would never do it. I wouldn't risk. uh, I mean, I'm living for my children now. I'm an older father. I'm 59. Um, Like I'm not going to do anything that jeopardizes their welfare or even takes me away from from them for very long. I would just miss them too much. And I think they would miss me.
1: Yeah. Um, We've got some comments, and we're going to go to the phones. Um, Wayne writes, in the book Escape from Freedom, the author, a European in 1941, argued that many people don't know what to do with the freedom they have and decide to surrender it to their leaders, including demagogues, rather than exercise the rights freedom bestows. This could explain why so many Americans give up their freedom to people like former President Trump rather than exercise critical thinking about how to use their freedom responsibly. Jackie writes, there are many examples in nature and animals where the smaller female is able to outfight the larger male without weapons needed. And let's go to Dan in Berkeley. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Dan. Oh, oh hello. Hey, we can hear you. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. So my question is just in light
3: of the uh, last 15 months, particularly here in California, where we've given up so much of our freedom in exchange for uh, safety. I just kind of wonder what Sebastian's comments would be relative to, to that.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Thank you, Dan. Sebastian?
2: Well, the point of society is to keep everyone safe and um, help provide for the things that they need for their, for their lives. And so it's a collective decision. Uh, I mean, th- our, our government tells us that we cannot drive on the left-hand side of the road because you're going to have a head-on collision and kill somebody. And we just, you, we do not have the right to unilaterally decide I'm going to drive on the left-hand side of the road because I feel like it. We don't have the right to do that. Our society has made that decision for us. And so if, to, if the government is making decisions for our collective safety that, that, that you're against, and certainly you know, governments overreach all the time, right? But in a democracy, which is a form of freedom, uh, in a democracy, there's recourse. There's the courts and there's the ballot box. Um, what there isn't the one recourse that there that, that does not exist in a democracy is violence that actually is not a um a choice that can be made in in a free society because there are these other legal and peaceful means for 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 changing the rules mm-hmm.
1: you know i want to bounce back to jackie's uh comment, which was, uh, about men and women. And, you know, this is an extremely male book as like a man who loves endurance sports. Like there's a lot in this, uh, for me, but what did you think women would take away from freedom?
2: Well, the, you know, one of the, one of the things that gives people uh, access to freedom is, is their mobility. And so, you know, I focused on a female ultra marathoner, um, uh, who has just Won open races. I mean, defeated every all the men in the race as well. So you know, individuals often can perform, often do perform way, way outside the sort of the bell curve, uh, the average of their of their population. Um, and oh, uh, y- there's I mean, there's women throughout the book. I mean, what I would say is that men, it's invariably men that de- try to deprive other peoples of their freedom. And so men do come under the microscope here, and and because combat is um, in almost every human society a predominantly male endeavor, um, it sometimes does fall to men to defend the society against outsiders, which has been unfortunately part of the human condition for tens of thousands of years. Uh, so yeah, I thought it, it definitely is part of it. But uh, you know, the whole last part of the book think you know, talks about how we maintain our, our rights and our freedom within our own society, particularly within a democracy. You know, I looked at the, um, the labor movement around 100 years ago in America, and, you know, a crucial component of, of any group like that, any underdog group that's trying to change society, a crucial component is having women in that group. And I'm very, very clear about that. The, the mill strikes in Lawrence Mass uh, in, in 1912, were they were the, the the male strikers from the textile mills were you know they put all these sort of tough guys out on the street for the strike and you know they could do nothing against national guard with fixed bayonets and then they put women on the streets and um and involved them in the strike in the organization of the strike and they were crucial and that tipped the balance as one 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 police chief said in lawrence he said one uh He said, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And that tipped the balance, and the strikers won. So women are absolutely crucial to this. I hope when women read this book, that's exactly what they take from it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In the discussion of the strike, it seemed like you were leaning towards um, a competing value for society with freedom of solidarity, Um, but you don't actually come right out and say that this could be, you know, an alternative uh, basis, or at least a, a value that could meaningfully enrich the freedom that people have?
2: I, I'm sorry. I'm not quite sure what you're asking me. Uh, I apologize. Oh, yeah. Just
1: how you see solidarity combining with freedom, which seems to be one of the things that's happening in the strikes in the book.
2: Oh, I, OK. I'm sorry. Yeah, gotcha. you. a little slow today. Uh, Yeah, I mean, solidarity is the heart of any successful defense of a society. I mean, without solidarity, uh, societies fall apart very quickly, particularly when faced with an enemy. Uh, And even if that enemy is the National Guard within your own country. Um, And the problem with solidarity is that it institutes norms within the group that sometimes don't feel like freedom. So that's the eternal balance. Like, how do you maintain your defense, the defense of your community, whether that's a group of strikers in 1912 in Massachusetts or, you know, the Neolithic Iberians who were faced with the, you know, warlike Yamnaya who were, uh, you know, carving them to pieces 5,000 years ago. Like, how do you, how do you face those threats and maintain an equitable society where the, the group norm doesn't sort of crush uh, individuality and individual opinion?
1: Yeah. We're talking with Sebastian Younger author of the new book, Freedom. His other books include Tribe, War, and The Perfect Storm. What's your definition of freedom? And what's the freedom you've willingly given up? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Sebastian Younger about freedom, both his new book and the concept. Let's bring in Leslie from Oakland, California. Hello? Oh, hello. Leslie, can you hear us?
5: Yes, I can.
0: Oh, great. Go Thank ahead. Thank you for
5: taking my call. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really appreciate um, Sebastian's um, exploration of freedom and I think my questions and comments are probably more on the philosophical end. In that, I do think, um, even as you brought up the question of solidarity, it seems that there's a way that it's easy to think of freedom and conflate it with our individual embodiment and individuality. I think um, my definition of freedom is the freedom to make, uh, to freedom to create community and to be a part of community, because I think it goes to the question of what does it mean to just be a human being? I think if there's a sense in which being um, a human being is, oh, I'm just an individual embodied person, and that's it without recognizing that we are inherently interdependent. And I think that's Mm -hmm. partly my definition of humanity because we are interdependent on oxygen and we're we're always accountable. We're always accountable to the laws of physics. We're accountable to one another, but it's really choosing into those things. And so I think – My question, and even the tension between the collective and the individual that you have raised, really speaks to the fact that, you know, when you're born, you are dependent on others. And when you die, you're dependent on others. And so I think the question of freedom also has to be put into a context of, well, what does it mean just to be a human being? And we do need one another. Freedom, it can't be defined just as this unaccountable individual choice making. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that's a fallacy. So I just my question is, how does he think about the inherent qualities of humanness? And does it inherently include interdependence as a part of its basic function that we cannot escape? Like we cannot escape the laws of gravity.
1: You, you are accountable to gravity and you are always accountable to collectives. Sebastian, That's my comment and question. Oh, thank you so much for that, uh, Leslie. And, and Sebastian, maybe this actually seems like something that has grown in your thinking, this idea of interdependence and, and community?
2: Yeah. I mean, humans are, you know, we're social primates, right? And we, you know, we don't have very sharp claws. We don't have very sharp teeth. Uh, we can't run very fast. We can't really climb trees very well. Like we, we, the re, the reason we're safe within the natural world is because we act collectively uh, and we'll, we'll commit a sort of, um, will we'll enact a kind of um, selfless defense of the group. I mean, individuals, individual humans will die to protect the group, which isn't, um, you know, isn't very common in the, in the animal kingdom. And, and uh, so, so that absolutely, I mean, I think you're the caller, I, I, I hope, understands that her perspective is identical to what we've been talking about for the past hour. We, we, we get our safety from and, and just about everything we need from being part of a group. And as I say in the book, the idea that you can take all of this amazing good from society and owe it nothing in, in return is just absurd. Um, it, 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 it's, as I say, it's li- literally infantile. Like only, only children need, uh, owe nothing, um, but adults owe whatever the group decides that they owe. And um, you know, my father grew up, um, he fled fascism in Spain in 1936 when Franco came in and then he fled fascism again from France, when the Nazis came in, and he came to this country because he believed fascism would never come to these shores, and so far he's been right. And um, he, you know, he made made very clear to me that tens, hundreds of thousands of Americans had devi- Americans had died fighting fascism, um, f- fighting forces opposed to human freedom uh, in Europe and in the Pacific, and and that um, sometimes countries require you to risk your life in the defense. In, in its defense and he said to me i grew up during vietnam and i you know i thought that the draft was ridiculous and you know whatever i had all those very liberal beliefs about all that stuff he's like listen there might be another war like world war ii that actually we're actually fascist need fascism needs to be defeated and you might have to fight it and uh so that that was all a conversation around Surant, signing my uh selective service card and sending it back to the government
1: mm. You know, you you said something really interesting about war in The Last Patrol. Um, You said that, you know, I'm going to paraphrase and then quote, uh, you said basically, you know, you thought of war as something that could kind of turn you into a man and then said, you know, after you went as a journalist into these combat situations for quite a long time that, quote, war turned me into the person I wanted to be. Do you, tell us more about that and do you still think that's true?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I grew up uh, in a very protected, privileged environment where I'd never really been tested and where I never really had to put the the um, concerns and the safety of others ahead of my own. Um, and war re- requires that. And um, and I felt in the absence of, you know, I wasn't living in a society that was faced with any any real threats or hardship at all. There was no way to sort of demonstrate my willingness to make sacri- in to make personal sacrifices for the common good, uh, which is an eternal human, which has been an eternal human human reality until very recently, and and it was something I sort of longed for, and and um, I had you know maybe in a kind of cliched way, but I had this idea that in war I would be confronted with situations that fell completely outside of my control and terrifying, and that and that I might be transformed in some ways that. I would call a, a new maturity. And it did do that. It did, you know, war turned me into a lot of different things. Uh, it humanized me very deeply. Uh, it awakened me to the reality of human suffering. And I, you know, I would say it also um, matured me in some important ways.
1: Do you think that your experience with war and the things that it did to you prepared you for fatherhood some another experience where people think of self-sacrifice as being essential to the to the thing itself
2: uh, yeah i mean I, I would say you have to be mature to be a good father and that that my experiences overseas including in wars ma- helped mature me um so yeah no, i mean i don't know if i draw a direct line between them but certainly they're related yes
1: Um, let's bring in, uh, Camelia, Camelia from Sebastopol.
6: Hey, uh, thank you so much for this topic and for this hour. I'm really appreciating the conversation and I wanted to address that question that you had asked about what freedom have I willingly given up and, uh, makes me think of the Benjamin Franklin quote of those who are willing to sacrifice liberty for the sake of security you know, deserve neither. Um, and that's paraphrasing of course, But by participating in society, I've essentially willingly given up my right to privacy. Um, You know, CCTV, cameras being traced and tracked online. Essentially, our movements are tracked from the second we wake up to the second we go to sleep. And so um, it's one of those freedoms that I, if I was given a choice, I wouldn't give up. But by participating, by choosing to participate in an online world and driving on the road, I'm agreeing to give up those freedoms. And it's it's confusing to me. It's, it's one of those places where I internally want to push back and say, hey, wait, I'm not sure I want to enter into this social contract. However, yeah, that guy murdered someone. Thank goodness we have CCTV so that you can track him down um, and help, you know, Help him on the road to recovery, or to you know enter the system. So it's this balancing him or her, whatever balance of the ways in which I'm protected and the ways in which I'm concerned by what sometimes feels like an overreach.
1: Mm-hmm. Sebastian, yeah. you go go ahead. Yeah,
2: no, I mean that's the eternal human dilemma, right? Like, how, how do you balance those two things? I mean, what I would say is that when you walk down the street hundreds of people are seeing you pass and they're not intruding on your freedom by observing you. Um, and if they, if they observe you committing a crime and they call the police, they're not intruding on your freedom because you're part of a society and you agree to abide by its norms and its laws. And likewise with CCTV, I mean, it can observe you all, all it wants. And there are some pretty strict laws about how that information can be used or can't used against an individual. And, um, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and, and you feel those laws are not adequate to protect your, your, you know, sometimes people confuse the word freedom with the word rights. If you, if you feel those laws are not adequate to protect your rights and your privacy, well, then that must be addressed at the state legislature, in the courts, in the ballot box, whatever it may be. But there is recourse, right? And there's also the recourse of moving to another country that doesn't have CCTV or to live in a rural community or what have you, or by yourself in the wilderness. Like, I mean, that's all. But when you freely choose to participate in a group and their group makes clear what its norms are, uh, you know, either change those norms by fair means or agree to them. Like, that's just the human condition. This isn't a new this isn't a new situation.
1: For- but do you think that the technologization of many of these previously human tasks has sort of tilted the balance of, of what you have to give up to participate in society um, towards government authorities or, or others, private enterprises?
2: Well, I mean, you know, violent crime is a, is a huge um, threat to our individual rights and to our freedom Uh, and one of the ways that violent crime can be combated is through extensive surveillance through cctv so uh, you know as long as those cameras are not being used in illegal ways that constrain your freedom uh i mean they're 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 used to monitor people who are breaking the law right and as long as that's all they're used for you know i would say your freedom hasn't been touched and uh you know, as for social media and all that stuff like I mean I don't under, I mean I have a flip phone I don't have a smartphone I, I you know honestly I just don't want corporate interests and or the government knowing every darn thing that I buy and everything I've ever googled and all, all that stuff like you you know in some sense the, the most profound freedom is to not be addicted to anything not be dependent on anything right and so an addiction is the the plague of modern society I mean, People are addicted to alcohol and drugs and fast food and television and 24 hour seven entertainment and social media and their iPhones and on and on and on. And th- that is a profound uh, assault on your freedom. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things you could do to make you to really to really free yourself in a lot of ways uh, is to take your smartphone and go to the nearest pond and cock your arm and see how many skips you can get out of it before it sk- sinks to the bottom.
1: I think Michael, actually, from San Rafael, wants to talk about this as well.
3: <laughs> Good morning. I'm so uh, enthralled by this, by this topic in the last couple minutes, especially because I'm calling on my flip phone. And, nice! Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed your work over the years, Mr. Younger. What a pleasure to talk with you. And um, thanks for bringing this up here in the last few minutes, because I see um, I'm a middle school teacher here in the city and uh, in, in SF public schools. And uh, I see kids just so it, it really is heartbreaking and troubling um, to see how um, social media has really clamped down. I, I see it as their freedom. I see it as their interest. I see it as the possibility of other interests, you know, and you get things like TikTok that are insidiously. On, really uh i don't know they they adjust the algorithm to people's behavior you know so I'm, I'm really curious about how that is affecting our human freedoms and you know riding the bus no one talks anymore because everyone's just glued to that that pocket computer that that pocket robot so-called phone that no one seems to talk into you know so thanks for bringing it up i'm not going to be uh skipping smartphones but <laughs> 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 wonderful topic today gentlemen thanks a lot thanks michael
2: yeah so I, so uh, um, I think an important thing to keep in mind um, is that um, y- you if you're addicted to something you're not free and so you have to be very careful about the practices that you that you undertake every day and that you allow into your life um, I, there I, I spoke to a guy who'd done decades in prison um, and he, for a terrible crime. And he, he really reformed himself. He educated himself. He's an extraordinary man, amazing mind. And he was let out early on good behavior. And I interviewed him right after he came out of prison. And I asked him, I said, I feel a little silly asking this, but um, I'd like to know, do you think it's possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? And he, he looked at me like I was crazy, right? He was like, of course it is. Are you kidding? He said, look at, look at people out there. He said, they're all, like, they're all addicted to things. You, know, you can't be addicted to drugs in prison. You can't, you can't be addicted to your iPhone and to social media and to television and all that other stuff. He, he said, that really is what deprives people of their freedom, uh, of their autonomy. Um, and he said, in prison, you got nothing but time. And eventually you're gonna have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing there. And when you, when you finally get around to doing that, you are a free person. And that's a kind of freedom that many people on the outside, as he called people outside of prison, that many people on the outside—it's a form of free- freedom that many people do not attain. Well,
1: and you're you're getting to a kind of freedom that sort of gets glanced on in the book, but it's sort of that the the inner sense of freedom that say you know um, mystics might have, or 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 other people who with a with a really deep spiritual practice. Do you see that as something I know that you are kind of an avowed atheist, but do you see that kind of inner work as, as part of freedom outside of, you know, being able to maintain, you know, your, your personal safety and the safety of your society?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't, it could, I could have, I could have written a four section book, um, run, fight, think, and feel right. And, uh, and by feel, I would that would encompass the kind of spiritual quest that you're talking about. Um, that felt so, it's interesting and it's profound, um, but it's also quite ephemeral. And um, I feel that the for, for most of human history, the struggle has been to maintain our autonomy in the face of other powerful individuals and groups, despots, dictators, fascists, uh, militaristic, aggressive groups that invade countries and kill people. Like that for, for tens of thousands of years, like the, the, the human struggle for autonomy and for dignity has involved facing those threats. And, I, you know, I, I, I felt that the, the mechanisms that allow us to defend ourselves from those threats hadn't really been adequately sort of framed and, and explored. Uh, there's been a lot of literature, a lot of thinking by very, very smart people on sort of inner spiritual freedom. And, I, you know, I just felt I didn't have something new to say about that, although I have enormous respect for that endeavor and, and for that sort of body of knowledge.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to go to caller Javier in San Francisco. Javier, are you there?
3: Oh, Hi. Yeah. I wanted to make a comment. Uh, my journey towards true freedom, uh started seven years ago in San Francisco. I had a terrible landlord and after eight years of fighting in the courts, he had to buy me out and I had to move. So I used the settlement to purchase a truck and a camper. And that began my, my journey towards true freedom. I've been driving across the country for seven years, according to the seasons and, uh, working different jobs in different cities and, uh, I think most people would be really afraid of being truly free because with my solar panels and my self contained toilet, I can do whatever I want. I could live wherever I park, and uh, I don't have the monkey on my back knowing that I have all these, these bills to pay and um, uh, things, to, things to do.
1: Yep. Javier, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your freedom. We've been talking with Sebastian Younger author of freedom thank you sebastian want to end with a couple of comments david writes like justice we consider freedom something sacred and fundamental however to be sacred and fundamental freedom must be universal that is freedom cannot be just for yourself or your tribe but for all or azul writes james baldwin says for nothing is more unbearable once one has it than freedom i'm alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned for more with mina kim
3: with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.